Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, your opportunity to gain in less than 30 minutes at least one proven idea to run a more successful and sustainable business or team. Today's guest has had probably as much impact on me and the way I view running a successful business and dealing with a fast-changing marketplace than anybody I've, I've come in contact with in 40 years. Dr. Ted Prince is our guest from Perth Leadership, and um, you're going to enjoy hearing from Ted, but just a little bit more about my meeting Ted. Uh, I got introduced to Ted through a good friend, Bill Hutter, and Bill is a contrarian by nature, and he became aware of Dr. Prince uh, actually, I'm not even sure exactly how the two of you connected, Ted, but but as a result of that, Bill said that, you know, you need to meet this guy. And so I took the assessments that Ted offered and I tried to game the assessments and prove I was a really uh, powerful producer of revenue and profits. And the tests indicated I was not not very good at it. And as a result of that, I discounted the value that Ted and his assessments could bring and, and basically said they were BS. And then um, subsequently had, because of a need of another client, had to come back and explore the use of the uh, Perth Leadership Behavioral Finance Assessments. And we'll talk more about the second time I took those assessments. But through that, I became to uh, understand the value of them and got to know Dr. Ted Prince as, one, a genuinely good human being, and number two, one of the brightest minds I've ever been around. So with that long introduction, Ted, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Ed, thanks for the promo. And just so I warn people in advance, uh, I have an Australian accent. Uh, I speak American tolerably well. But if you need help, Ed is very good at translating into real American. Uh, well, I don't think it's the Aussie accent as much as it is your education, your use of the full scope of the American language, um, <laughs> the English language, I should say. So you, you use it as well as anybody, but sometimes you use words that most of us don't know what they mean. <laughs> um, Ted, first of all, because you are involved with behavioral finance, would you explain to people what that is, your your definition of behavioral economics and finance? Uh yeah, it's uh, pretty new, as you know. Uh, the first Nobel Prizes were awarded uh, in 2002, and there have been several since. And the, the fundamental idea is that traditional economics assumes we're all rational people, right? Well, that definitely accepts me. It might <laughs> even accept you, Ed, but it does. we started to realize, and right now we're in the middle of going into maybe a massive recession, and we're doing things with quarantine, which some people may not regard as being rational. Um, so what we know from past crises, uh, as well as uh, people's leaders' behavior in companies, is that a lot of the time we don't make rational decisions. Right. But the problem is, that all of modern economics 
is based on the bedrock assumption that we make rational decisions. We always make rational decisions, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Right. And behavioral economics and behavioral finance are based on the idea that we're not rational. Hey, what a big idea, right? We're not right. rational. Right. And so in the trade, rather than talking about people being rational or not rational, we talk about the idea of mixed rationality, that when we make decisions, sometimes we're rational, a lot of the times we're not, but here's the kicker, we don't know when we're rational and when we're not. We have no idea. That's the idea. And so you became, one, convinced that this was reality, that there, there was truth to the fact that we're not always rational when we make decisions. Um, and secondly, then you you set out to find a way to, what would you say, quantify that? Yeah, yeah. I came up with the idea many years ago. I didn't even know that behavioral finance existed. But it, 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 you know, I've run several companies, and it was an idea which had been running around my head while I was doing it. And so to cut a long story short, um, I built a framework and then realized I had to, I, I published a couple of books. And then I realized actually it wasn't real unless I could measure it. It's all nice, nice theory, but it's for academics, not for real people. Right. So, yes, I, I uh, started uh, a multi-year research project. I formed a team. Uh, it took us around five years, and we developed uh, assessments, which measure not just how irrational or rational you are, but whether or not you're going to make money based on your level of cognitive biases. Yep. Uh, and by the way, uh, Ted's doing a great job of brevity right here because he's not always as brief as what he has made himself. Uh, I, I can tell he's working at being being concise in his, his statements about this. Um, Ted, what's been the response to uh, most people when you start having a conversation about what behavioral finance can mean and the and and then extension to the going and talking about the assessments and what they do for business do, do most people receive that as yeah i'm interested and we should do it or do they are they highly skeptical or what's the response in general well that's an interesting uh question ed and it, and it varies um but most people are believing but skeptical. What they'll tend to say to you, Ted, if you can do this, this is absolutely amazing. Right. You, you can predict whether or not someone will make money. That's amazing if you can do it, but I don't believe you can do it because I've never seen anything like that. I understand their assessments are assessments which will tell us whether or not you're good with other people, whether they like you, whether you're good on teams. But I don't believe that you can predict whether or not we'll make money. But if you could show me that, sure, I'd be very interested. Okay. And I'd say that's been most of the, the typical response that I get from most of the executives with whom I speak. So let's let's summarize what we talked about so far. The premise is one that most theory assumes people are going to be rational when they run businesses and making decisions when in fact 
most times were not truly rational. There's a combination of emotion and, and feeling that drives a decision, not just rational thinking. And we don't necessarily know when we're in that mode of being either rational or non-rational in our thinking. The second thing was that you you set out to quantify and be able to measure what, what that cognitive bias or thinking and behavior would, would show for people. And in fact, you have three different assessments now. You have one that measures the cognitive bias or the hard wiring that people have uh, that would cause them to e- show how rational or not they're going to be. Um, the second assessment is the behavior they're currently exhibiting in the work that they do. And then the third is, would you call that the assessment about how they view the organization of which they're a part? Yeah, that's correct, Ed. And, and in particular, how well aligned or otherwise they are yeah. with the financial mission of their company. Yeah. Um, the, the, the website for Ted's organization is Perth leadership.org correct am i saying that ted that's that's correct ed. yeah and perth is p-e-r-t-h like the city in australia um uh we we need a couple of sessions with ted here on our podcast because even the way he came up with the name for perth leadership <laughs> is pretty interesting in and of itself if we spent we could spend a, a, a entire podcast on his background and the places he's worked and where he uh, honed his craft um, but we don't have time to do that today. So I want to I want to spend uh, time, though, in making sure that the audience gets a couple of, of key thoughts clear in their own minds. One, whether this would be valuable for them in their business. And number two, what's the likelihood that this is going to become normal testing as we go forward over the next uh, 10 and 20 years in, in the in the business world? Um, Ted, uh, talk about uh, the the data that you've accumulated about how many people are predisposed to make or lose money. Wow. You see, this is where uh, I got to be careful when I'm talking because people can get very defensive. But let's go. Right. We're not here to satisfy, Ted. We're here to transform. (laughs) So if people don't like the answers that you're going to give, that's their problem. So tell us that. Tell us what you know to be true. Well, we we've done a mound of thousands of people. Yep. And uh, fundamentally, what our tests show is a long explanation around this, but whether or not you're going to make money, whether or not you're going to create capital. And we divide you into three groups, whether you'll make money, value-centric, whether you'll lose money, resource-centric, or whether you'll break even, balanced. And fundamentally, of the people who make money is around 12% of everyone we've ever tested. In other words... When we test a group, I can be pretty confident. I can look at the group, and I often do do this. I'll say that I know without even measuring it, 88% of this group will normally either consume capital or at best break even. Yeah. Right. And, so we can be pretty sure of that. And and I would tell you, full disclosure to our audience, um, I am a big believer in behavioral finance, the behavioral economics premises that not only Ted believes in, but others, uh, Kahneman and who's the other Israeli guy? Swirsky. Yeah. And and those guys are really the the fathers of, of this discipline. Is that correct, Ted? Correct. Yeah. And just for people's benefit, those two gentlemen in Israel got involved and, and went down this path to prove this irrational way of thinking because the Israeli army was looking for a better way to decide about how to choose their officers. And what they had found is, is prior to the work that these two gentlemen did, 
that the biases that people would use to choose their officers oftentimes led them to choose the wrong people. And so the Israeli army was looking for a more objective way and more uh, predictable way to choose the right people to lead their various military entities. And because of the work these folks did, I think they've done a much better job, they would they would tell you. So that's the, the, the genesis of why we're having this conversation today. And that goes back into the 60s, I believe it was, when they, when they did their work. Sure. You're listening to the Ed Epley Experience. Email Ed now with your questions for today's guest to podcast at theepleygroup.com. In his book, Let's Be Clear, Six Disciplines of Focused Management Pros, author Ed Epley breaks down key practices of professional management, how to implement them, and why it matters. Purchase your copy on Amazon.com today. Develop your competitive edge for the future while building a sustainable and thriving business. When I do the Perth assessments with the executives, the data tends to support that I see supports the ratios that Ted's just described. So usually in a group of 10 executives, there'll be one that will be hardwired to make or create capital. And the balance of the team will be pretty much around that the same distribution of half of those people will be break even and half the half of the, those others will still be uh, consumers of capital. So the data tends to support what I've seen in, in my own use of the uh, Perth instruments. Um, I will tell you that this is the most disruptive assessment I have ever seen for an executive. And by what I mean by that is um, when we present the results to individuals and teams without question, they are more predisposed to feel the need to do something different based upon what they see in their results compared to any other assessment. So we can talk about behavioral assessments um, like uh, Myers-Briggs. We can talk about personality assessments like Hogan and Divine um, which, you know, uh, rate uh, traits and qualities that people possess. Um, and most people, when they do those assessments, go, interesting. Okay, I learned some stuff about myself and I learn about other members on my team. Um, and so I take that under advisement and I might be more self-aware. But nobody translates what they learn from a Myers-Briggs or a Divine or a DISC to the impact that's going to have on the financial results of the organization. And what Perth does not let you get away from and, and does not let you av- av- avoid is the coming to the realization that whatever your assessment tells you, there is a financial consequence, good or bad. So, Ted, um, do you think that do you think that that uh, disruption that this causes for executives, by and large, makes it easier for them to change or in some cases, does it make it harder for them to change? I think it depends on their level of mental agility. And we have to accept that not everyone is mentally very agile. Um, Intelligence has nothing to do with mental agility. Say that again. Say that again. (laughs) I think it's pretty important that we get that reinforced in our, our audience's mind. Yeah, so intelligence doesn't necessarily have anything to do with mental agility. In fact, we have a lot of figures that show that your level of education in general correlates negatively with your level of business acumen. 
So what we can show you from our figures is that if you have a, a PhD or uh, an MBA, your business acumen is likely to be lower than if you didn't have it. And there are very deep uh, psychometric reasons for that and, and psychological reasons for that, which we don't have time to go into here. But what it really means is, is that if you've been to Harvard and you've got an MBA, it's, it's absolutely no guarantee that you'll make money. In fact, it may well be an indicator that you'll make less, right? But, of course, we're all lulled into a false sense of security. Well, I got an MBA from Harvard. I must be really smart. And we are going into what may be a depression right now. Right, right. Right? That is not going to, you know, you, whether or not you have an MBA or whatever is not going to affect your profitability outcome. In, a, in the good times, a rising tide lifts all boats, and we all think we're heroes. So we all tend to say, well, my company's making money. I must be a hero. I must know how to make money, but that's not true at all. Now the recession is going to lay bare uh, your impact on financial outcomes. And for most people, that is not going to be a pretty sight, right? So the whole premise that the more education I have could oftentimes get in the way of me being able to be a creator of capital is basically we got a whole educational system that would say that that's, that's false, that inherently there's They'll say they can supply evidence all day long where, why that's not true. Well, of, of course, this is why Peter Thiel, the, the billionaire, gives scholarships, startup scholarships, only to people who are not at university or who have dropped out. And if you're aware of one of my favorite authors, George Gilder, George Gilder has just published a book, Life After Google. George Gilder is probably one of the ultra smartest people you could ever know. And his proposition, too, is that the academic complex, of course, is pushing their services uh, because it's self-aggrandizing, but it doesn't necessarily do anything for us, right? I, I'm going to have to get that book. Um, it's a fascinating book. Life After Google. Life After Google, George Gill. It's a heavy-duty book, probably one of the best books I've read in recent years. I'm, I'm, He's a very it, insightful guy. Ted, how many books do you read a month? It depends, maybe five or six. Okay. And how many publications do you read a week? Oh, you mean like articles? And, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I maybe seven or eight hundred. I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> that is the most prolific reader and writer I have ever met in my life. I don't know. I don't know how you, you must sleep four hours a day because you, you spend most of your time reading and writing, I think. Incidentally, and I often believe, I often think about my reading and think it shows a fundamental weakness in me, right? Because I think you can absorb too much information. I think too much information can be negative. Because of course we've all we've all got a tendency to filter out the things we agree that we don't agree with, and read things we agree with. It's we all got it, right? Yeah. Um, 
let me ask you this. So, Ted, uh, I'm going to take you into a discussion about the impact of uh, the COVID-19 and, and the global economy. But before we do that, I want to summarize what we've been talking about so far, because we want our listeners to get at least one good idea to help them run a more sustainable and successful business. So if there's one thing you want the listeners to take away from this discussion we've had so far about behavioral finance, what would it be? Uh, and it would be that. Uh, if you're hiring someone and you want them to have a positive impact on the PNL, uh, you should heavily distrust people with higher levels of education, particularly a PhD, also an MBA, and you should also distrust people who spent their entire working life in big companies. Um, you want to elaborate might, uh, elaborate yeah. on the latter why that would be important. Well, you know, if you've been in a big company, uh, you've always been part of very extended teams, right? And so it's very easy to think the success of the company or your unit is, is very heavily related to what you've contributed. But, of course, it isn't. You know, in every team, you have a wide variety of skills, and they're constantly subbing for you. They're, they're constantly... <laughs> Uh, compensating for your very real uh, faults. But you never know that. We all believe that we're heroes and we're all Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> so we all think that when we see these successful outcomes, it's due to us. It really, really, really is. But you never know that. The Pareto principle is at work in that in that scenario very often, correct? 20% of the people are producing 80% of the value of the team. Yes, and the only and and you know of course you you're going to see some of my uh, biases here, but you're not going to see that through looking at traditional leadership assessments. And in saying that, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. The traditional leadership assessments are very very useful and do some tremendous stuff into showing you how your team works. But they were never designed to show how individuals contribute to making money. Or they don't. don't do that. Or don't, <laughs> mate, right? And actually, if you don't, do you want to know that? Yeah. Are you going to go into your next job and say, fellas, I want to be honest with you. I've just done an assessment, and I'm I'm really hopeless at making money. But don't tell anyone, right? Um, if you, if you, you'll never know that, and you don't want other people to know, but you should know that. Absolutely. Ted, how do you rationalize what you just got done telling me that uh, higher education oftentimes means less agility and less ability to actually contribute to the business in a, in a profitable way with the fact that you have a doctor on the front of your name? Uh, well, it's a good point. And I think I'm absolutely subject to that rule. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm not a Warren Buffett. I wish I was. But, you know, I've managed to decode what parts of my behavior of preventing me being a Warren Buffett, and I can certainly do it with other people. Yes. But, uh, you know, it kind of reminds you, I, I've been asked this question before, and it's a very good question. And what I always say to people, you know, uh, Einstein decoded how the universe worked, but if you asked him to make a telescope, he wouldn't be able to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, so, that's some of us have the ability to do certain things and not others, right? Yep. Um, and for whatever reason, people who are 
the people who seem to make the most money don't have conventionally high IQs. Um, they're street learners and street smart, not book learners and book smart. And the, the, the reasons for that is if you haven't been educated, you don't know what you're not supposed to do, right? <laughs> because yeah. you never learned what you were supposed to do. So by depriving yourself of education, you don't get channeled into the deep grooves, into intellectual frameworks which prevent people from doing something. I'm going to stop you right there. I'm yeah. going to stop you right there because we together, you and I did work with a uh, regional accounting firm near here, near Columbus, Ohio, where I live. And we had five principals in the room. And uh, during that meeting, you essentially told one of the uh, founders of the organization that <laughs> he, he, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but it was it was not a kind comment. Um, <laughs> uh, and he first of all, he was surprised at it. But secondly, he he responded really well to it. So CPAs, lawyers, doctors are often essentially trained not to be entrepreneurial, correct? That's correct. And, and actually, the same thing is true of large companies. You go into a large company, you've got a law degree or a finance yeah. degree, you're taught to think in particular ways. Yeah. That's why you're selected. Yeah. But if the world doesn't want you to think in that way and it will respond better if you think in other ways, then you're not the right guy. <laughs> Right. All right. All right. Let's uh, in the time we have left, let's let's uh, talk about the impact of the COVID-19. And and in, in fact, it started in China and um, you've you've spent a tremendous amount of time in China. You may know more about the country and the economy of the, of the China. So how's that going to play out for for them as a result of of what's happened with this virus and, and supply chains. Do you think people are going to disengage some, uh, take, bring back some of their manufacturing or move it out of China as a result of this? What's that going to look like, do you think? Well, we're clearly at a fork in the road, and it's a hard fork. And it's a hard fork not just for China, not just for the U.S., it's a hard fork for the world. We're in an episode right now which in many ways – is akin to the Great Depression. It's a discontinuity. And maybe after 10 years, we'll realize that it's done some good things. But clearly, right now, we're going to have a huge discontinuity in uh, economic progress, right? And it's going to be very hard for We're going to get millions of companies going under. It doesn't matter what the Fed does or, or central banks. And that's the bad news. The good news is it's an opportunity. The good news is that this shows us that we are irrational, right? Yes. It shows us that the heroes we thought we were last week, we weren't at all, right? Yes. We were just play, playing along with a globally established rule book that only works some of the time and it should stop working. So the message in this is, as leaders, we've got to open up. We've got to become more open-minded. We've got to realize that a lot of our success was due to events beyond our control, that we didn't actually do it, 
we were just in the right place at the right time. And that time has changed. We've got to change with it. And to talk about the sort of stuff we do, Ed, in leadership development, we've got to change. We've got to become mentally more agile. We've got to realize that we are all part of the problem. And we've got to change our thinking to become part of the solution. One of your favorite words is actually two words is contrarian thinking. Is that extra important right now? I think so. I think um, I happen to believe, as you are aware, uh, that we have taken the wrong strategies uh, with coronavirus. Uh, It's all done in good faith. Um, we, We can't say that people were trying to give us a problem. This is an unprecedented event. But... Uh, you've got to think outside the box, and we haven't been thinking outside the box with coronavirus. And Can you give us an example of what you would mean, of, of, of what that might look like? Well, I think right now uh, the, the, the knee-jerk response, both in China and the U.S., is um, this stuff is uh, contagious or whatever, infectious. We've got to, we've got to quarantine everyone. We've got to stop it, you know, social distancing, right? Right, right. Um, but that essentially means we've got to take everyone out of operation, which is going to lead to the global economy self-destructing for the moment. What we should have done and should be doing is instead of quarantining 90% of the uh, population, locking people down, we should be saying, look, of the population is going to have a very serious health event because of this. We should be quarantining those people. We should be quarantining 2.7% of the people and focusing on their health. And sure, that means that 98% of people are going to get sick, but they're not going to die. Let's focus on the 2% of people that could die. But we haven't. We focus on the the 98% of people who aren't going to die. And in the process, we've tanked the world economy. And that means millions of people are going to lose their jobs. Millions of people are going to die of starvation in Africa, the Middle East, even China. And millions of people are going to have massive mental health issues, which are going to lead to suicide. drug overdoses and the like, and that's probably going to result in way more deaths than we would have ever had from coronavirus. That's disruptive thinking right there, folks. Um, not everybody's going to agree with what you just said, Ted, but that you're used to that. So Yeah, <laughs> we, mean... need, we need people to think differently. Yeah, we, right. we do. <laughs> um, so right now, if I run a business, should I be trying to conserve cash? Should I be trying to just get through the next 90, 120 days and see what what's what the reality looks like then as opposed to now? Or should I be more concerned about positioning myself to uh, take advantage of these circumstances that we find ourselves in? Well, clearly all of the above. But the most important thing is, while you're conserving cash, to think strategically, to get things strategically together, to figure out how you conserve cash so it has the most future value. It's no use conserving cash 
if you cut valuable activities. The only way you're going to survive in the future is by adding value. And that means you've got to identify the people who create value. And unfortunately, it means you've got to triage. You've got to uh, do things about people who are not adding value. That doesn't mean firing them, but it may do. But it certainly means revamping your operations to focus on behavioral value. Most people don't know where they have most behavioral value. Right, right. And you've got to focus on that. Ted, uh, we're running out of time, so let's let people know how they can reach you, get in touch with you, learn more about behavioral uh, finance and, and Perth leadership. What's the way to, to reach you if they want to? Uh, well, number one, Ed, contact you. <laughs> <laughs> I will Please. certainly I will certainly put them in contact. Absolutely. I'd be gl- glad Ed to do Epley, that. Ed Epley, D.C. Epley. Epley Associates. Yeah, yeah. But failing that, if you can't find Ed because he's so busy traveling around the world, um, you can find us at perthleadership.org. That's P for Peter, E-R-T-H, Perth, as in Perth, Australia. PerthLeadership.org, O-R-G, and that will tell you what we do. Okay. And we're always very happy to talk to you. And if you, and if you want to reach me, the best way now to reach me is at ed at the Epley group.com. That's my email address. Uh, the Epley group.com website is there for you to reach uh, me for either my book or for blogs. And uh, we'll put a link up for connecting to Ted as well. Uh, but as always, we appreciate you, our audience, for listening to us. And uh, hopefully you got your good idea. My guess is you got more than one good idea today after listening to Ted. We'll have him back soon. Ted, thank you for being our guest today on the Ed Epley Experience. Thank you, Ed. As always, it was captivating and fascinating to be with you. So look forward to the future as well. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, okay, everyone. Thanks, Ed. We'll see you. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's the Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y, group.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills. <laughs>